0: Hello and welcome to the Strange Tales podcast presented by me your host Winston R. Douglas. We are a weekly podcast that looks a weird and wonderful tales from history, true crime, conspiracies and much more. I will try to cover various topics from different eras hopefully we can take a journey through history together. If you are a first time listener please look back on our previous episodes, if you are a returning listener thank you for your continual support. If you enjoy the podcast, please smash that gorgeous like button and subscribe so that you will be notified to future shows. Also, if you could write a five star review, that would really help us get the word out. So other people can enjoy the podcast as well. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at Strange Tales Pod. Or you can message me at Strange Pod at gmail.com with feedback or ideas on future shows. If you would like to support the podcast you can do so through Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash pod. Where we have plans from as little as 3 US dollars a month and you can opt out anytime. Any help is much appreciated. This week we look into the Bay of Pigs invasion that was a failed landing operation on the southwestern coast of Cuba in 1961 by Cuban exiles who opposed Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution, covertly financed and directed by the U.S. government. Over 1,400 paramilitaries, divided into five infantry battalions and one paratrooper battalion, assembled and launched from Guatemala and Nicaragua by boat on 17 April 1961. Two days earlier, eight CIA-supplied B-26 bombers had attacked Cuban airfields. The main invasion force landed on the beach at Playa Giron in the Bay of Pigs, where it overwhelmed a local revolutionary militia. Initially, the invading force had been defeated within three days by the Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces and surrendered on 20 April. Most of the invading counter-revolutionary troops were publicly interrogated and put into Cuban prisons. The invasion was a U.S. foreign policy failure. The invasion's defeat solidified Castro's role as a national hero, and widened the political division between the two formerly allied countries. It also pushed Cuba closer to the Soviet Union, setting the stage for the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Okay, let's get into today's strange tales. The idea of overthrowing Castro's government emerged within the CIA in early 1960. Founded in 1947 by the National Security Act, the CIA was a product of the Cold War, having been designed to counter the espionage activities of the Soviet Union's own National Security Agency, the KGB. As the perceived threat of international communism grew larger, the CIA expanded its activities to undertake covert economic, political, and military activities that would advance causes favorable to U.S. interests, often resulting in brutal dictatorships that favored U.S. interests. CIA Director Alan Dulles was responsible for overseeing covert operations across the world, and although widely considered an ineffectual administrator, He was popular among his employees, whom he had protected from the accusations of McCarthyism. Recognizing that Castro and his government were becoming increasingly hostile and openly opposed to the United States, Eisenhower directed the CIA to begin preparations of invading Cuba and overthrow the Castro regime. Richard M. Bissell Jr. was charged with overseeing plans for the Bay of Pigs invasion. He assembled agents to aid him in the plot, many of whom had worked on the 1954 Guatemalan coup six years before, these included David Phillips, Jerry Droller, and E. Howard Hunt. Bissell placed Droller in charge of liaising with anti-Castro segments of the Cuban-American community living in the United States, and asked Hunt to fashion a government in exile, which the CIA would effectively control. Hunt proceeded to travel to Havana, where he spoke with Cubans from various backgrounds. Returning to the U.S., he informed the Cuban-Americans with whom he was liaising that they would have to move their base of operations from Florida to Mexico City, because the State Department refused to permit the training of a militia on U.S. soil. Although unhappy with the news, they conceded to the order. President Eisenhower had meetings with President-elect Kennedy at the White House on 6 December 1960 and 19 January 1961. In one conversation, Eisenhower stated that since March 1960, the U.S. government had trained in small units, but we had done nothing else, some hundreds of refugees in Guatemala, a few in Panama, and some in Florida. However, Eisenhower also expressed disapproval of the idea of Batista returning to power and was waiting for the exiles to agree on a leader who was opposed to both Castro and Batista. On 17 March 1960, the CIA put forward their plan for the overthrow of Castro's administration to the U.S. National Security Council, where President Eisenhower lent his support, approving a CIA budget of $13 million to explore options to remove Castro from power. The first stated objective of the plan was to bring about the replacement of the Castro regime with one more devoted to the true interests of the Cuban people and more acceptable to the U.S. in such a manner to avoid any appearance of U.S. intervention. Four major forms of action were to be taken to aid anti-communist opposition in Cuba at the time. These included providing a powerful propaganda offensive against the regime, perfecting a covert intelligence network within Cuba developing paramilitary forces outside of Cuba, and acquiring the necessary logistical support for covered military operations on the island. At this stage, however, it was still not clear that an invasion would take place. Contrary to popular belief, however, documents obtained from the Eisenhower Library revealed that Eisenhower had not ordered or approved plans for an amphibious assault on Cuba. 28 January 1961, President Kennedy was briefed, together with all the major departments, on the latest plan, codenamed Operation Pluto, which involved 1,000 men landed in a ship-borne invasion at Trinidad, Cuba, about 270 kilometers southeast of Havana, at the foothills of the Escombré Mountains in Sancti Spiritus Province. Kennedy authorized the active departments to continue and to report progress. Trinidad had good port facilities, it was closer to many existing counter-revolutionary activities, and it offered an escape route into the Escombre Mountains. That scheme was subsequently rejected by the State Department because the airfield there was not large enough for B-26 bombers and, since B-26s were to play a prominent role in the invasion. This would destroy the facade that the invasion was just an uprising with no American involvement. Secretary of State Dean Rusk raised some eyebrows by contemplating airdropping a bulldozer to extend the airfield. Kennedy rejected Trinidad, preferring a more low-key locale. On 4 April 1961, President Kennedy approved the Bay of Pigs plan, also known as Operation Zapata, Because it had a sufficiently long airfield, it was farther away from large groups of civilians than the Trinidad plan, and it was less noisy militarily, which would make denial of direct U.S. involvement more plausible. The invasion landing area was changed to beaches bordering the Bayo de Cochinos, Bay of Pigs, in Las Villas province, 150 kilometers southeast of Havana, and east of the Zapata Peninsula. The landings were to take place at Playa Giron, codenamed Blue Beach, Playa Laga, codenamed Red Beach, and Coleta Buena Inlet, codenamed Green Beach. Top aides to Kennedy, such as Dean Rusk and both Joint Chiefs of Staff, later said that they had hesitations about the plans but muted their thoughts. Some leaders blamed these problems on the Cold War mindset or the determination of the Kennedy brothers to oust Castro and fulfill campaign promises. Military advisors were skeptical of its potential for success as well. Despite these hesitations, Kennedy still ordered the attack to take place. In March 1961, the CIA helped Cuban exiles in Miami to create the Cuban Revolutionary Council, chaired by José Miró Cardona, former prime minister of Cuba. Cardona became the de facto leader in waiting of the intended post-invasion Cuban government. April 1960, the CIA began to recruit anti-Castro Cuban exiles in the Miami area. Until July 1960, assessment and training was carried out on Yusepa Island and at various other facilities in South Florida, such as Homestead Air Force Base. Specialist guerrilla training took place at Fort Gullick and Fort Clayton in Panama. The force that became Brigade 2506 started with 28 men, who initially were told that their training was being paid for by an anonymous Cuban millionaire emigre. But the recruits soon guessed who was paying the bills, calling their supposed anonymous benefactor Uncle Sam, and the pretense was dropped. The overall leader was Dr. Manuel Artime while the military leader was Jose Pepe Perez San Román, a former Cuban army officer imprisoned under both Batista and Castro. For the increasing number of recruits, infantry training was carried out at a CIA-run base codenamed J.M. Trax. The base was on the Pacific coast of Guatemala between Quetzaltenango and Retalhuleu, in the Helvetia Coffee Plantation. The exiled group named themselves Brigade 2506 in summer 1960, an airfield was constructed near Retalhuleu, Guatemala. Gunnery and flight training of Brigade 2506 aircrews was carried out by personnel from Alabama Air National Guard under Gen. Reed Doster, using at least six Douglas B-26 invaders in the markings of the Guatemalan Air Force. An additional 26 B-26s were obtained from U.S. military stocks sanitized at Field 3 to obscure their origins, and about 20 of them were converted for offensive operations by removal of defensive armament, standardization of the eight-gun nose, addition of underwing drop tanks and rocket racks. Paratroop training was at a base nicknamed Garapatanango, near Quetzaltenango, Guatemala. Training for boat handling and amphibious landings took place at Viacar Island, Puerto Rico. Tank training for the Brigade 2506M41 Walker Bulldog Tanks took place at Fort Knox, Kentucky, and Fort Benning, Georgia. Underwater demolition and infiltration training took place at Belle Chasse near New Orleans. To create a navy, the CAA purchased five cargo ships from the Cuban-owned, Miami-based Garcia Line, thereby giving plausible deniability as the State Department had insisted no U.S. ships could be involved in the invasion. The first four of the five ships, namely the Atlantico, the Cariba, the Houston and Rio Escondido were to carry enough supplies and weapons to last 30 days while the Lake Charles had 15 days of supplies and was intended to land the provisional government of Cuba. The ships were loaded with supplies at New Orleans and sailed to Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua. Additionally, the invasion force had two old landing craft infantry ships, the Blagger and Barbara J from World War II that were part of the CIA's Ghost Ship Fleet and served as command ships for the invasion. The crews of the supply ships were Cuban while the crews of the LCIs were Americans, borrowed by the CIA from the Military Sea Transportation Service. One CIA officer wrote that MSDS sailors were all professional and experienced but not trained for combat. In November 1960, the Retaluleu recruits took part in quelling an officer's rebellion in Guatemala, in addition to the intervention of the U.S. Navy. The CIA transported people, supplies, and arms from Florida to all the bases at night, using Douglas C-54 transports. The 9th of April 1961, Brigade 2506 personnel, ships, and aircraft started transferring from Guatemala to Puerto Cabezas. Curtiss C-46s were also used for transport between Retalaleu and a CIA base at Puerto Cabezas. Facilities and limited logistical assistance were provided by the governments of General Miguel Ydigueros Fuentes in Guatemala, and General Luis Somoza de Baila in Nicaragua, but no military personnel or equipment of those nations was directly employed in the conflict. Both governments later received military training and equipment, including some of the CIA's remaining B-26s. In early 1961, Cuba's army possessed Soviet-designed T-34 medium tanks, IS-2 heavy tanks, SU-100 tank destroyers, 122 mm howitzers, other artillery and small arms, plus Italian 105 mm howitzers. The Cuban Air Force armed inventory included B-26 Invader light bombers, Hawker Sea Fury fighters, and Lockheed T-33 jets, all remaining from the Fuerza Aérea del Ejército de Cuba the Cuban Air Force of the Batista government. Anticipating invasion, Che Guevara stressed the importance of an armed civilian populace, stating, All of the Cuban people must become a guerrilla army, each and every Cuban must learn to handle and if necessary use firearms in defense of the nation. In April 1960, FRD Democratic Revolutionary Front rebels were taken to Uzeppa Island, Florida, which was covertly leased by the CIA at the time. Once the rebels had arrived, they were greeted by instructors from U.S. Army Special Forces groups, members from the U.S. Air Force and Air National Guard, and members of the CIA. The rebels were trained in amphibious assault tactics, guerrilla warfare, infantry and weapons training, unit tactics and land navigation. Alan Dulles was in Puerto Rico to embark with the Operation 40 Group, conceived by the CIA and kept secret from Kennedy, which included a group of CIA operatives who had the task of mowing down the Cuban communist political cadres. At the head of the death squad was Joaquin Sanjenis Podomo, former police chief in Cuba, intelligence officer Rafael de Jesus Gutierrez. The group included David Atlee Phillips, Howard Hunt, and David Sanchez Morales. The recruiting of Cuban exiles in Miami was organized by CIA staff officers E. Howard Hunt and Jerry Droller. Detailed planning, training and military operations were conducted by Jacob Esteline, Colonel Jack Hawkins. Félix Rodríguez, Rafael de Jesús Gutiérrez and Colonel Stanley W. Billy, under the direction of Richard Bissell, and his deputy Tracy Barnes. The Cuban security apparatus knew the invasion was coming, in part due to indiscreet talk by members of the brigade, some of which was heard in Miami and repeated in U.S. and foreign newspaper reports. Nevertheless, days before the invasion, multiple acts of sabotage were carried out such as the El Encanto fire, an arson attack in a department store in Havana on 13 April that killed one shop worker. The Cuban government also had been warned by senior KGB agents Osaldo Sánchez Cabrera and Aragon, who died violently before and after the invasion, respectively. The general Cuban population was not well informed of intelligence matters, which the U.S. sought to exploit with propaganda through CIA-funded Radio Swan. As of May 1960, almost all means of public communication were under public ownership. On 29 April 2000, a Washington Post article, Soviet's new date of Cuba attack, reported that the CIA had information indicating that the Soviet Union knew the invasion was going to take place and did not inform Kennedy. On 13 April 1961, Radio Moscow broadcast an English-language newscast, predicting the invasion in a plot hatched by the CIA using paid criminals within a week. The invasion took place four days later. David Ormsby Gore, the British ambassador to the U.S., stated that British intelligence analysis made available to the CIA indicated that the Cuban people were overwhelmingly behind Castro, and that there was no likelihood of mass defections or insurrections. Under cover of darkness, the invasion fleet set sail from Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua and headed towards the Bay of Pigs on the night of the 14th of April. After unloading the attack planes in Norfolk Naval Base and taking on prodigious quantities of food and supplies sufficient for the seven weeks at sea to come, the crew knew from the hasty camouflage of the ships and aircraft identifying numbers that a secret mission was on hand. Combatants were supplied with forged Cuban local currency, in the form of 20 peso bills, identifiable by the serial numbers F-69 and F-70. The aircraft carrier group of the USS Essex had been at sea for nearly a month before the invasion. Its crew was well aware of the impending battle. En route, Essex had made a nighttime stop at a Navy arms depot in Charleston, South Carolina, to load tactical nuclear weapons to be held ready during the cruise. The afternoon of the invasion, one accompanying destroyer rendezvoused with Essex to have a gun mount repaired and put back into action, the ship displayed numerous shell casings on deck from its shore bombardment actions. On 16 April Essex was at general quarters for most of a day, Soviet MiG-15s made feints and close-range flyovers that night. During the night of 14-15 April, a diversionary landing was planned near Barakoa, Oriente Province, by about 164 Cuban exiles commanded by Higinio Nino Diaz. Their mother ship, named La Playa or Santa Ana, had sailed from Key West under a Costa Rican ensign. Several U.S. Navy destroyers were stationed offshore near Guantanamo Bay to give the appearance of an impending invasion fleet. The reconnaissance boats turned back to the ship after their crews detected activities by Cuban militia forces along the coastline. As a result of those activities, at daybreak, a reconnaissance sortie over the Baracoa area was launched from Santiago to Cuba by far Lockheed T-33, piloted by Lieutenant Orestes Acosta and it crashed fatally into the sea. On 17 April, His name was falsely quoted as a defector among the disinformation circulating in Miami. The CIA, with the backing of the Pentagon, had originally requested permission to produce sonic booms over Havana on 14 April to create confusion. The request was a form of psychological warfare that had proven successful in the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954. The point was to create confusion in Havana, and have it be a distraction to Castro if they could break all the windows in town. The request was denied, however, since officials thought such would be too obvious a sign of of involvement by the United States. On 15 April 1961, at about 6 a.m. Cuban local time, 8B-26B invader bombers in three groups simultaneously attacked three Cuban airfields at San Antonio de los Baños and at Ciudad Libertad, both near Havana, plus the Antonio Maceo International Airport at Santiago de Cuba. The B-26s had been prepared by the CIA on behalf of Brigade 2506 and had been painted with the false flag markings of the FAR. Each came armed with bombs, rockets, and machine guns. They had flown from Puerto Cabezas in Nicaragua and were crewed by exiled Cuban pilots and navigators of the self-styled Fuerza Aérea de Liberación. The purpose of the action was reportedly to destroy most or all of the armed aircraft of the far in preparation for the main invasion. At Santiago, the two attackers destroyed a C-47 transport a PBY Catalina flying boat, two B-26s and a civilian Douglas DC-3 plus various other civilian aircraft. At San Antonio, the three attackers destroyed three FAR B-26s, one Hawker Sea fury and one T-33, and one attacker diverted to Grand Cayman because of low fuel. Aircraft that diverted to the Caymans were seized by the United Kingdom since they were suspicious that the Cayman Islands might be perceived as a launch site for the invasion. At Ciudad Libertad, the three attackers destroyed only non-operational aircraft such as two Republic P-47 Thunderbolts. One of those attackers was damaged by anti-aircraft fire and ditched about 50 kilometers north of Cuba, with the loss of its crew Daniel Fernandez Mon and Gaston Perez. Its companion B-26, also damaged, continued north and landed at Boca Chica Field, Florida. The crew, Jose Crespo and Lorenzo Perez Lorenzo, were granted political asylum, and made their way back to Nicaragua the next day via Miami and the daily CIAC 54 flight from Opeloka Airport to Puerto Cabezas Airport. Their B-26, purposely numbered 933, the same as at least two other B-26s that day for disinformation reasons, was held until late on 17 April. 90 minutes after the eight B-26s had taken off from Puerto Cabezas to attack Cuban airfields, another B-26 departed on a deception flight that took it close to Cuba but headed north towards Florida. Like the bomber groups, it carried false FAR markings and the same number 933 as painted on at least two of the others. Before departure, the cowling from one of the aircraft's two engines was removed by CIA personnel, fired upon then reinstalled to give the false appearance that the aircraft had taken ground fire at some point during its flight. At a safe distance north of Cuba, the pilot feathered the engine with the pre-installed bullet holes in the cowling, radioed a mayday call, and requested immediate permission to land at Miami International Airport. He landed and taxied to the military area of the airport near an Air Force C-47 and was met by several government cars. The pilot was Mario Suñiga, formerly of the Cuban Air Force under Batista, and after landing, he masqueraded as Juan Garcia and publicly claimed that three colleagues had also defected from the far. The next day he was granted political asylum, and that night he returned to Puerto Cabezas via Opa Loca. This deception operation was successful at the time in convincing much of the world media that the attacks on the far bases were the work of an internal anti-communist faction and did not involve outside actors. At 10.30 a.m. on 15 April at the United Nations, Cuban Foreign Minister Raúl Roa accused the U.S. of aggressive air attacks against Cuba and that afternoon formally tabled a motion to the political committee of the UN General Assembly. Only days earlier, the CIA had unsuccessfully attempted to entice Raúl Roa into defecting. In response to Roa's accusations before the UN, United States Ambassador to the United Nations Adlai Stevenson stated that U.S. armed forces would not under any conditions intervene in Cuba, and that the U.S. would do everything in its power to ensure that no U.S. citizens would participate in actions against Cuba. He also stated that Cuban defectors had carried out the attacks that day, and he presented a UPI photo of Suñiga's B-26 in Cuban markings at Miami Airport. Stevenson was later embarrassed to realize that the CIA had lied to him. President Kennedy supported the statement made by Stevenson, I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. While we could not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. On the 15th of April, the Cuban National Police, led by Efigenio Amageras, started the process of arresting thousands of suspected anti-revolutionary individuals, and detaining them in provisional locations such as the Karl Marx Theater, the Motor Fortaleza de la Cabana, and the Principa Castle, all in Havana, and the baseball park in Mantanzas. In total, between 20,000 and 100,000 people would be arrested. On the night of 15-16 April, the Nino Diaz group failed in a second attempted diversionary landing at a different location near Baracoa. On 16 April, Murado Leon, Jose Leon, and 14 others staged an armed uprising at Las Delithias Estate in Las Villas, With only four surviving. Following the airstrikes on the Cuban airfields on the 15th of April, the FAR prepared for action with its surviving aircraft which numbered at least four T-33 jet trainers, four Sea Fury fighters and five or six B-26 medium bombers. All three types were armed with machine guns, except the Sea Furies which had 20mm cannon, for air-to-air combat and for strafing of ships and ground targets. CIA planners had failed to discover that the US-supplied T-33 trainer jets had long been armed with M3 machine guns. The three types could also carry bombs and rocket pods for attacks against ships and tanks. No additional airstrikes against Cuban airfields and aircraft were specifically planned before 17 April, because B-26 pilots' exaggerated claims gave the CIA false confidence in the success of the 15th of April attacks. Until two reconnaissance photos taken on the 16th of April showed otherwise. Late on the 16th of April, President Kennedy ordered the cancellation of further airfield strikes planned for dawn on the 17th of April to attempt plausible deniability of direct U.S. involvement. Late on the 16th of April. The CIA-Brigade 2506 invasion fleet converged on Rendezvous Point Zulu, about 65 kilometers south of Cuba, having sailed from Puerto Cabezas in Nicaragua, where they had been loaded with troops and other materiel, after loading arms and supplies at New Orleans. The U.S. Navy operation was codenamed Bumpy Road, having been changed from Crossbatch. The fleet, labeled the Cuban Expeditionary Force (CF) included five 2,400-ton freighter ships chartered by the CIA from the Garcia line, and subsequently outfitted with anti-aircraft guns. Four of the freighters, Houston, Rio Escondido, Cariba, and Atlantico, were planned to transport about 1,400 troops in seven battalions of troops and armaments near to the invasion beaches. The fifth freighter, Lake Charles, was loaded with follow-up supplies and some Operation 40 infiltration personnel. The freighters sailed under Liberian ensigns. Accompanying them were two LCIs outfitted with heavy armament at Key West. The LCIs were Blagger and Barbara J, sailing under Nicaraguan ensigns. After exercises and training at Viacar Island, the Ceph ships were individually escorted to Point Zulu by U.S. Navy destroyers USS Beach, USS Beale, USS Conway, USS Coney, USS Eaton, USS Murray, and USS Waller. U.S. Navy Task Group 81.8 had already assembled off the Cayman Islands, commanded by Rear Admiral John E. Clark on board aircraft carrier USS Essex plus helicopter assault carrier USS Boxer, destroyers USS Hank, USS John W. Weeks, USS Purdy, USS Wren, and submarines USS Cobbler and USS Threadfin. Command and control ship USS Northampton and carrier USS Shangri-La were also reportedly active in the Caribbean at the time. USS San Marcos was a landing ship dock that carried three landing craft utility which could accommodate the brigade's M41 Walker Bulldog tanks and four landing craft, vehicles, personnel. San Marcos had sailed from Vecar Island. At Point Sulu, the seven CEF ships sailed north without the USN escorts, except for San Marcos that continued until the seven landing craft were unloaded when just outside the five kilometers Cuban territorial limit. During the night of 16–17 April, a mock diversionary landing was organized by CIA operatives nearby Bayahonda, Honda, Pinar del Rio Province. A flotilla containing equipment that broadcast sounds and other effects of a shipborne invasion landing provided the source of Cuban reports that briefly lured Fidel Castro away from the Bay of Pigs battlefront area. Midnight 17 April 1961, the two LCI's Blagger and Barbara J, each with a CIA operations officer and an underwater demolition team of five frogmen, entered the Bay of Pigs on the southern coast of Cuba. They headed a force of four transport ships carrying about 1,400 Cuban exile ground troops of Brigade 2506, plus the brigade's M41 tanks and other vehicles in the landing craft. At about 01:00, oh, oh, Blagger. As the battlefield command ship, directed the principal landing at Playa Giron, led by the frogmen in rubber boats, followed by troops from Caribe in small aluminium boats, then the LCVPs and LCUs with the M41 tanks. Barbara J., leading Houston, similarly landed troops 35 kilometers further northwest at Playa Larga, using small fiberglass boats. The unloading of troops at night was delayed. Because of engine failures and boats damaged by unseen coral reefs, the CIA had originally believed that the coral reef was seaweed. As the frogmen came in, they were shocked to discover that the red beach was lit with floodlights, which led to the location of the landing being hastily changed. As the frogmen landed, a firefight broke out when a jeep-carrying Cuban militia happened to go by. The few militias in the area succeeded in warning Cuban armed forces via radio soon after the first landing, before the invaders overcame their token resistance. Castro was awakened at about 3.15 am to be informed of the landings, which led him to put all militia units in the area on the highest state of alert and to order airstrikes. The Cuban regime planned to strike the brigadistas at Playa Laga first as they were inland before turning on the brigadistas at Giron at sea. El Comandante departed personally to lead his forces into battle against the brigadistas. At daybreak around 6.30 am, three far sea furies, one B-26 bomber and two T-33s started attacking those F-ships, still unloading troops. At about 6.50, south of Playa Larga, Houston was damaged by several bombs and rockets from a Sea Fury and a T-33, and about two hours later Captain Luis Morse intentionally beached it on the western side of the bay. About 270 troops had been unloaded, but about 180 survivors who struggled ashore were incapable of taking part in further action because of the loss of most of their weapons and equipment. The loss of Houston was a great blow to the brigadistas as that ship was carrying much of the medical supplies, which meant that wounded brigadistas had to make do with inadequate medical care. At about 7 o'clock, two FAL B-26s attacked and sank the Cuban Navy patrol escort ship El Bear at Nueva Girona on the Isle of Pines. They then proceeded to Giron to join two other B-26s to attack Cuban ground troops and provide distraction air cover for the paratroop C-46s and the CEF ships under air attack. The M-41 tanks had all landed by 7.30 am at Blue Beach and all of the troops by 8.30 am. Neither San Román at Blue Beach nor Ernido Oliva at Red Beach could communicate as all of the radios had been soaked in the water during the landings. At about 5 five C-46 and one C-54 transport aircraft dropped 177 paratroops from the parachute battalion in an action code named Operation Falcon. About 30 men, plus heavy equipment, were dropped south of the Central Australia sugar mill on the road to Palpit and Playa Larga, but the equipment was lost in the swamps, and the troops failed to block the road. Other troops were dropped at San Blas, at Giacomo between Corvardonga and San Blas, and at Hawk between Yaguaramas and San Blas. Those positions to block the roads were maintained for two days, reinforced by ground troops from Playa Giron and tanks. The paratroopers had landed amid a collection of militia, but their training allowed them to hold their own against the ill-trained militiamen. However, the dispersal of the paratroopers as they landed meant they were unable to take the road from the sugar mill down to Playa Larga, which allowed the government to continue to send troops down to resist the invasion. At about 8.30, a Far Sea Fury piloted by Carlos Ulloa hours crashed in the bay after encountering a FAL C-46 returning south after dropping paratroops. By 9 o'clock, Cuban troops and militia from outside the area had started arriving at the sugar mill, Corvardonga and Yaguramas. Throughout the day they were reinforced by more troops, heavy armor and T-34 tanks typically carried on flatbed trucks. At about 9.30, Farsi Furies and T33's fired rockets at Rio Escondido, which then blew up and sank about 3 kilometers south of Giron. Rio Escondido was loaded with aviation fuel, and as the ship started to burn, the captain gave the order to abandon ship with the ship being destroyed in 3 explosions shortly afterward. Rio Escondido carried fuel along with enough ammunition, food, and medical supplies to last 10 days and the radio, that allowed the brigade to communicate with the FAL. The loss of the communications ship Rio Escondido meant that San Roman was only able to issue orders to the forces at Blue Beach, and he had no idea of what was happening at Red Beach or with the paratroopers. A messenger from Red Beach arrived at about 10 am asking San Roman to send tank and infantry to block the road from the sugar mill, a request that he agreed to. It was not expected that government forces would be counter-attacking from this direction. At about 11 o'clock, Castro issued a statement over Cuba's nationwide network saying that the invaders, members of the exiled Cuban Revolutionary Front, have come to destroy the revolution and take away the dignity and rights of men. At about 11 o'clock, a FAR T-33 attacked and shot down a FAL B-26 piloted by Matias Farias, who then survived a crash landing on the Giron airfield, his navigator Eduardo Gonzalez already killed by gunfire. His companion B-26 suffered damage and diverted to Grand Cayman Island. Pilot Mario Suniga navigator Oscar Viga returned to Puerto Cabezas via CAAC-54 on the 18th of April. By about 11 o'clock, the two remaining freighters Cariba and Atlantico, and the LCI's and LCU's, started retreating south to international waters, but still pursued by far aircraft. At about noon, a Farby-26 exploded from heavy anti-aircraft fire from Blaga, and pilot Luis Silva Tablada, on his second sortie, and his crew of three were lost. By noon, hundreds of Cuban militia cadets from Mantanzas secured Palpit and cautiously advanced on foot south towards Playa Laga suffering many casualties during attacks by Falbi 26s. By dusk, other Cuban ground forces gradually advanced southward from Corvardonga, southwest from Yaguaramas toward San Blas, and westward along coastal tracks from Cienfuegos towards Giron, all without heavy weapons or armor. At 2.30 p.m. a group of militiamen from the 339th Battalion set up a position, which came under attack from the Brigadista M41 tanks which inflicted heavy losses on the defenders. This action is remembered in Cuba as the slaughter of the lost battalion as most of the militiamen perished. Three Falbi-26s were shot down by far T-33s, with the loss of pilots Raúl Vinello, José Crespo, Osvaldo Piedra and navigators Lorenzo Pérez-Lorenzo and José Fernández. Vinello's navigator Demetrio Pérez bailed out and was picked up by USS Murray. Pilot Crispin García Fernández and navigator Juan González Romero, in B-26 Serial 940, diverted to Boca Chica, but late that night they attempted to fly back to Puerto Cabezas in B-26 Serial 933 that Crespo had flown to Boca Chica on 15 April. In October 1961, the remains of the B-26 and its two crew were found in the dense jungle in Nicaragua. One Falbi 26 diverted to Grand Cayman with engine failure. By 4 o'clock, Castro had arrived at the Central Australia sugar mill, joining José Ramón Fernández whom he had appointed as battlefield commander before dawn that day. Osvaldo Ramírez, leader of the rural resistance to Castro, was captured by Castro's forces in Aromas de Velasquez and immediately executed. At about 5 o'clock, a night air strike by three FAL B-26s on San Antonio de los Banos airfield failed, reportedly because of incompetence and bad weather. Two other B-26s had aborted the mission after takeoff. Other sources allege that heavy anti-aircraft fire scared the aircrews. As night fell, Atlantico and Cariba pulled away from Cuba to be followed by Blagger and Barbara J. The ships were to return to the Bay of Pigs the following day to unload more ammunition. However the captains of the Atlantico and Cariba decided to abandon the invasion and head out to open sea fearing further air attacks by the FAR. Destroyers from the US Navy intercepted Atlantico about 180 kilometers south of Cuba and persuaded the captain to return, but Cariba was not intercepted until she was 218 miles away from Cuba, and she was not to return until it was too late. During the night of 17–18 April, the force at Red Beach came under repeated counter-attacks from the Cuban army and militia. As casualties mounted, and ammunition was used up, the brigadistas steadily gave way. Airdrops from four C-54s and 2s, C-46s had only limited success in landing more ammunition. Both the Blagger and Barbara J returned at midnight to land more ammunition, which proved insufficient for the Brigadistas. Following desperate appeals for help from Oliva, San Roman ordered all of his M41 tanks to assist in the defense. During the night fighting, a tank battle broke out when the Brigadista M41 tanks clashed with the T34 tanks of the Cuban army. This sharp action forced back the Brigadistas. At 10 pm, the Cuban army opened fire with its 76.2mm and 122mm artillery guns on the Brigadista forces at Playa Laga, which was followed by an attack by T-34 tanks at about midnight. The 2,000 artillery rounds fired by the Cuban army had mostly missed the Brigadista defence positions, and the T-34 tanks rode into an ambush when they came under fire from the Brigadista M41 tanks and mortar fire, and a number of T-34 tanks were destroyed or knocked out. At 1 am, Cuban army infantrymen and militiamen started an offensive. Despite heavy losses on the part of the Cuban forces, the shortage of ammunition forced the brigadistas back and the T-34 tanks continued to force their way past the wreckage of the battlefield to press on the assault. The Cuban forces numbered about 2,100, consisting of about 300 FAR soldiers, 1,600 militiamen, and 200 policemen supported by 20 T-34s who were faced by 370 brigadistas. By 5 a.m., Bolívar started to order his men to retreat as he had almost no ammunition or mortar rounds left. By about 10.30 a.m., Cuban troops and militia, supported by the T-34 tanks and 122mm artillery, took Playa Larga after brigade forces had fled towards Giron in the early hours. During the day, brigade forces retreated to San Blas along the two roads from Corvardonga and Yaguaramas. By then, both Castro and Fernandez had relocated to that battlefront area. As the men from Red Beach arrived at Giron, San Román and Oliva met to discuss the situation. With ammunition running low, Oliva suggested that the brigade retreat into the Escombré mountains to wage guerrilla warfare, but San Román decided to hold the beachhead. At about 11 a.m., the Cuban army began an offensive to take San Blas. San Román ordered all the paratroopers back in order to hold San Blas, and they halted the offensive. During the afternoon, Castro kept the brigadistas under steady air attack and artillery fire but did not order any new major attacks. At 2 p.m., President Kennedy received a telegram from Nikita Khrushchev in Moscow, stating the Russians would not allow the U.S. to enter Cuba and implied swift nuclear retribution to the United States heartland if their warnings were not heeded. During the night of 18 April, a FAL C-46 delivered arms and equipment to the Gurun airstrip occupied by Brigade Ground Forces and took off before daybreak on 19 April. The C-46 also evacuated Matthias Farias, the pilot of B-26 Serial 935 that had been shot down and crash-landed at Giron on 17 April. The crews of the Barbara J and Blagger had done their best to land what ammunition they had left onto the beachhead, but without air support the captains of both ships reported that it was too dangerous to be operating off the Cuban coast by day. The final air attack mission comprised five B-26s, four of which were manned by American CIA contract aircrews and volunteer pilots from the Alabama Air Guard. One FAR Sea Fury, piloted by Douglas Rudd, and two FAR T-33s, piloted by Rafael Del Pino and Alvaro Prendes, shot down two of these B-26s, killing four American airmen. Combat air patrols were flown by Douglas A4D2 and Skyhawk jets of VA-34 Squadron operating from USS Essex, with nationality and other markings removed. Sorties were flown to reassure brigade soldiers and pilots and to intimidate Cuban government forces without directly engaging in acts of war. At 10 am, a tank battle had broken out, with the brigadista holding their line until about 2 pm which led Olvia to order a retreat into Girón. Following the last air attacks, San Román ordered his paratroopers and the men of the 3rd Battalion to launch a surprise attack, which was initially successful but soon failed. With the brigadistas in disorganized retreat, the Cuban army and militiamen started to advance rapidly, taking San Blas only to be stopped outside of Giron at about 11 a.m. Later that afternoon, San Román heard the rumbling of the advancing T-34s and reported that with no more mortar rounds and bazooka rounds, he could not stop the tanks and ordered his men to fall back to the beach. Oliver arrived afterward to find that the brigadistas were all heading out to the beach or retreating into the jungle or swamps. Without direct air support, and short of ammunition, Brigade 2506 ground forces retreated to the beaches in the face of the onslaught from Cuban government artillery, tanks and infantry. Late on 19 April, destroyers USS Eaton and USS Murray moved into Cochinos Bay to evacuate retreating brigade soldiers from beaches, before fire from Cuban army tanks caused Commodore Crutchfield to order a withdrawal. 67 Cuban exiles from Brigade 2506 were killed in action, plus ten on the firing squad, ten on the boat Celia trying to escape, nine captured exiles in the sealed truck container on the way to Havana, four by accident, two in prison, and four American aviators, for a total of 106 casualties. Air crews killed in action totaled six from the Cuban Air Force, ten Cuban exiles and four American airmen. Paratrooper Eugene Herman Koch was killed in action, and the American airmen shot down were Thomas W. Ray, Leo F. Baker, Riley W. Schamberger, and Wade C. Gray. In 1979, the body of Thomas Pete Ray was repatriated from Cuba. In the 1990s, the CIA admitted he was linked to the agency, and awarded him the Intelligence Star. The final toll for Cuban armed forces during the conflict was 176 killed in action. This figure includes only the Cuban army, and it is estimated that about 2,000 militiamen were killed or wounded during the fighting. Other Cuban forces casualties were between 500 and 4,000 killed, wounded or missing. The airfield attacks on the 15th of April left seven Cubans dead and 53 wounded. 19 April, at least seven Cubans plus two CIA-hired U.S. citizens, Angus K. McNair and Howard F. Anderson, were executed in Pinar del Rio province, after a two-day trial. 20 April, Humberto Sori Marin was executed at La Cabana, having been arrested on 18 March following infiltration into Cuba with 14 tons of explosives. His fellow conspirators Rogelio González Corzo, Rafael Díaz Hanscom, Eufemio Fernández, Arturo Hernández-Telehesh and Manuel Lorenzo Puigmiá, were also executed. Between April and October 1961, hundreds of executions took place in response to the invasion. They took place at various prisons, including the Fort Azela de la Cabana, and Moro Castle. Infiltration team leaders Antonio Díaz Pu and Raimundo E. López, as well as underground students Virgilio Campanería, Alberto Tapia Ruano, and more than 100 other insurgents were executed. About 1,202 members of Brigade 2506 were captured, of whom nine died from asphyxiation during their transfer to Havana in an airtight truck container. In May 1961, Castro proposed to exchange the surviving brigade prisoners for 500 large farm tractors, later changed to 28 million U.S. dollars. On 8 September 1961, Fourteen Brigade prisoners were convicted of torture, murder and other major crimes committed in Cuba before the invasion. Five were executed and nine others imprisoned for 30 years. Three confirmed as executed were Ramon Calvino, Emilio Sola Puig, and Jorge King on the On 29 March 1962, 1,179 men were put on trial for treason. On 7 April 1962, all were convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. On 14 April 1962, 60 wounded and sick prisoners were freed and transported to the U.S. On 21 December 1962, Castro and James B. Donovan, a U.S. lawyer aided by Milan C. Muskovsky, a CIA legal officer, signed an agreement to exchange 1,113 prisoners for $53 million U.S. dollars in food and medicine, sourced from private donations and from companies expecting tax concessions. On 24 December 1962, some prisoners were flown to Miami, others following on the ship African pilot, plus about 1,000 family members also allowed to leave Cuba. On 29 December 1962, President Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline attended a welcome-back ceremony for Brigade 2506 veterans at the Orange Bowl in Miami, Florida. The failed invasion severely embarrassed the Kennedy administration and made Castro wary of future U.S. intervention in Cuba. On 21 April, in a State Department press conference, Kennedy said, There's an old saying that victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. Further statements, detailed discussions, are not to conceal responsibility because I'm the responsible officer of the government. On the 22nd of April 1961, President Kennedy asked, General Maxwell D. Taylor, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, Admiral Ali Burke and CIA Director Alan Dulles to form the Cuba Study Group, to report on lessons to learn from the failed operation. General Taylor submitted the Board of Enquiries report to President Kennedy on 13 June. It attributed the defeat to lack of early realization of the impossibility of success by covert means, to inadequate aircraft, to limitations on armaments, pilots, and air attacks set to attempt plausible deniability and, ultimately, to loss of important ships and lack of ammunition. The Taylor Commission was criticized, and bias implied. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, the president's brother, was included in the group, and the Commission collectively was seen to be more preoccupied with deflecting blame from the White House than concerned with realizing the real depth of mistakes that promoted the failure in Cuba. Jack Pfeiffer, who worked as a historian for the CIA until the mid-1980s, simplified his own view of the failed Bay of Pigs effort by quoting a statement which Raul Castro, Fidel's brother, had made to a Mexican journalist in 1975. Kennedy vacillated, Raul Castro said. If at that moment he had decided to invade us, he could have suffocated the island in a sea of blood, but he could have destroyed the revolution. Lucky for us, he vacillated. In spite of vigorous objections by CIA management to the findings, CIA Director Alan Dulles, CIA Deputy Director Charles Cabell, and Deputy Director for Plans Richard Bissell were all forced to resign by early 1962. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed today's Strange Tale. If you did, please smash that gorgeous like button and subscribe so that you will be notified to future shows. Also, if you could write a five star review, that would really help us get the word out so other people can enjoy the podcast as well. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Strange Tales Pod. Or you can message me at strangetalespod at gmail.com, with feedback or ideas on future shows. If you would like to support the podcast you can do so through Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash strangetalespod. Where we have plans from as little as 3 US dollars a month and you can opt out anytime. Any help is much appreciated. This is me your host Winston R. Douglas signing out for now. Thanks again hope to see you again soon.